Well, let's dive into part two of this one message that we began last week. Go ahead and get your Bibles and your journals, would you? Have them ready to go. As you do that, let me see if I can give you an illustrative framework for where we're headed today. Just last week, Julie and I made some salsa. Now, that's not a big deal for many of you uh, or for Julie. She's a fantastic uh, baker, cook, chef, whatever. It's not the same for me. I'm the guy whose specialty is Pop-Tarts. Um, and remember, last fall at the chili cook-off, my chili got named Death by Bitter Fire. So <laughs> the kitchen's not my favorite place uh, as a producer. I do like to be in there from the consumer point of view. I, I feel right at home there, okay? Anyway, we made some salsa, and together we took a number of elements, ingredients, we put them in the Ninja food processor, and voila, it's salsa. Man, even as, as of uh, last night, we were enjoying some chips and salsa. That's one of our favorites. Now, let me state the obvious here. That product that you're seeing was the end result of various pieces. That salsa that we enjoyed is the byproduct of many ingredients. Cilantro, garlic tomatoes, jalapenos, like some other stuff. We just put it all in there, blend it together, salt, more salt, even more salt. Right? And, and, and we enjoyed this thing called salsa. Such is the case with the mindset needed to live for the will of God. That one thing is the end result of several components. Living for the will of God is the product of many pieces. It's the one way of thinking that comes from a combination of many elements. That's the framework I need you to have as we look into 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, the first six verses. And we see the recipe, shall we use that word for a minute? We see the recipe for living for the will of God. We see the elements that make up the mindset required for this. And as you'll know, from today's time together, as well as from last week's, and really the book as a whole, I believe in Peter's mind, living for the will of God is synonymous with being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. I want to say this again to you. The will of God is a number of things in the scriptures. So we're not saying that it's not those things that Paul mentions, other New Testament writers that Jesus talks about. But in Peter's first epistle specifically, it seems that he's pointing the will of God um, um, measuring stick in his world at this time to these readers towards being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so he's giving us a mindset by which that can happen. So your Bibles are open to 1 Peter 4, right? Your journals are ready. This is the scripture we're going to see today. Again, we'll cover all six verses, only looking at the last four. But we're going to see this truth emerge. It's what we saw last week. We'll see it emerge this week. It's our take-home truth. Will you read it with me as we start today? It's the same as last week, but you're going to see it again, surface and prove itself to be the main thought Peter's getting across in these first six verses. Together, church, Christ's suffering 
leads to a whole new mindset required for our suffering, which is equivalent to living for the will of God. When I say equivalent, I mean synonymous, and I'm speaking specifically to this context, this epistle. So let's put our eyes again. Verses 1 through 6, 1 Peter 4. Follow along with me. I'll read these for us. Peter starts in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, you'll see the text before you in our lab. I want to take some time to show you again the one main aim and then the elements of the mindset. We covered the first one last week. I'll not review it very much at all. But notice we have one main aim in this text. It's the imperative verb, and that is to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. So if you're wondering what, what's Peter after, he wants us to think as Christ thought in regards to suffering because Christ suffered in the flesh. See this phrase? It's used again, suffered in the flesh. So it's He's saying the first one was about Christ. The second one, of course, is whoever was his readers, was us. So we've established this last week. Just want to make sure you understand. This is the main aim of the six verses. What is the way of thinking that Peter's driving at? And what we're going to see is that it's really seen in the three fours. Notice, first of all, the first one's in verse uh, 1, 4. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's the concept of dying to self. I'll not write that here. I'll just put D-S. means to die to self. And so when we die to self, we live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see that? So he's speaking of this mindset that what my sinful fleshly desires that want to find a way out of suffering... I'm not going to live for those. Instead, I'm going to have the mindset Christ did and die to self, die to human passions and lusts that are sinful so that I can live for God's will. That's the first concept. Of course, it's found in the first four. It's the first element of this mindset that Christ had that we should arm ourselves with. There are two more. Let me just show you briefly where you find them. The next one's in the first, is the four of verse three. And the last one's the four of verse six. Now, I want to pause there and say something to you just grammatically, textually, and pastorally. I'm going to combine all those three. This is how we see the text. We don't make things up. We just simply explain the text. We go to the Word. The Word has the power and authority over our life, and we get under it together. Amen, church? Amen. So this is how the text, how we arrive at three elements to the mindset. We didn't make them up. We're not just pulling them out thin air. We see that really the fours form the flow. 
And as you're reading Scripture, as you study the Bible, just a good kind of way to remember it. When you see four, it's an explanatory word. It kind of explains what's next. And this does flow in the fashion of the three fours. But knowing that, here's where I want to speak to you pastorally. The first four probably matters most. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm hedging that bet a little bit because I don't want you to think the other two are unimportant, but I need to be very transparent with you textually. This first four, dying to self, it feeds the other two. It's like the igniter. If there's not a dying to self, then what we're going to see next in elements two and three, or the ingredients of two and three, they're really not going to uh, matter much. In fact, you'll not have the fuel or the power to really do them. So as I explained to you, elements two and three, remember, they matter, but they flow out of element one. That's why we spent a whole week on dying to self. And now we're going to spend this week on elements two and three. What are elements two and three? Well, here's the first one. Begins in verse three. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You notice that? And then he lists them here, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. By the way, this last one, lawless idolatry, seems to be a categorical word or phrase used to sum up anything he may have forgotten. <laughs> like he mentioned some, some specific sins that, by the way, are sexual and selfish. So don't think just because you haven't committed sexual sins, you're in the free and clear. Really, he's speaking here of selfish desires too, because selfishness is why we sin sexually. And so we could expand this and think about other things, but the, the point is here. Here's selfish sexual sins, and then this whole category of this illegal, riotous, unlawful, both horizontally and vertically type of living that is just idolatrous. It's aimed at making sure that we get our way, that, that we please ourselves. We're number one. It's our way we're living for, not God's will. And he says this is how Gentiles live. So it's his word for pagans, those who don't believe in Christ. And I love most about this phrase, the part that says, the time that has passed suffices for doing this. This is like your mom or dad would say to you, enough's enough. It's like very parental here. Like, we, we need to be done with that kind of behavior. I'm not going to count to three. I'm not threatening anymore. We're done. Like, enough's enough. And Peter here says the time for living like that, man, what you did in the past should suffice. We need a different kind of behavior. That's element number two, a different behavior. In fact, maybe just put DB in your notes. I'll just write it here. You'll need to know what that stands for. But different behavior. Now, as we think about the kind of behavior that's expected of Christ's followers, let's ask two questions. What is it and why do we pursue it? Well, in a word, we would say what he's calling us to here is holiness. Not to live selfishly for our way, but to live separately, hear this word, separately for God's way. Because that is the whole meaning of the word sanctification, the word set apart. God has called us to himself. He's sanctified us. And now we're to live for his will, not our way. Thus Peter says, the time for living for your way is past. 
It's now time to live for God's will. I think it's interesting in verse 4 that he mentions the Gentiles or the lost folks are surprised when the readers in his day did not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Like that's a very descriptive phrase, isn't it? In other words, they're the shock that you don't join them in this um, uh, rapid pouring out of unrestrained indulgence. That's the actual little translation of same flood of debauchery. It, it translates as rapid pouring out of unrestrained indulgence. One commentator says it's, it's like this headlong rushing into sin and destruction. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm headed that way with every fiber of my being. Peter here says that the, the pagans, the Gentiles, were surprised that they didn't join in with them. And so the result was they maligned you, he says. Now, this is perhaps in Peter's letter one of the clearest expressions of how holiness not only exists in hostility, but actually can lead to hostility. This is what he says, isn't it? That because you have a distinct difference in your life, because there's a noticeable, actionable distinction between you and the culture, the world, they're going to verbally slander you. The word malign here means to come at you with words. I like the way Wayne Grudem talks about this phrase. He says this, that silent non-participation in a sin often implies condemnation of that sin. And thus, there are consequences to that action. I mean, there are times you don't need to say a word. You just simply don't participate. And then you get labeled as holier than thou. Think you're better than us. Who do you think you are? And, and the attacks begin to come verbally, don't they? They malign you. Here's why. It's because distinction draws a line. Now, we've been thinking about how we're treated by them, but let me just ask this more introspective question. Could it be that one of the reasons perhaps you are afraid to live distinctly is because you know precisely that it will draw a line and you're not ready for that? Could it be you're fearful of what may occur if your holiness, your pursuit of it is put on display? And so you fear man more than you fear God. Let's see if we can reverse that this morning because Peter next says that it's the fear of God that should drive us not to worry about what they do to us. Do you see it? Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what is the behavior in view here? It's holiness and why do we pursue holiness? Because there is a judgment coming. This is rare preaching. Can I just be frank with you? In our culture, we rarely hear preaching on judgment, especially as a bona fide biblical motivation for right living. But Peter does not shy away from saying, there is a judge who is ready to do what he's supposed to do. And so let's not live like we used to live. Let's not join with the pagans Let's be distinctly different, noticeable. Let's be holy. 
Because there is a judgment coming. Notice in the text. Two things about this judgment. It is imminent. He says, we're going to give an account to him who's ready. That means there's nothing still to happen. He's not waiting. He didn't fall asleep. He didn't forget. He's ready to judge the living and the dead, which means this judgment's imminent and universal. No one escapes. This is one of the roles of Jesus Christ when he comes. This sounds very similar to what Paul would say, doesn't it? In his second epistle to Timothy, when he describes Jesus as the one who is going to judge the living and the dead, same wording. So we live holy, and one reason we do that is because we know that judgment is coming. So I hope you hear that well, and that it is a proper motivating factor for you to be noticeably distinct in your behavior, to have a difference in how you live. It's one of the elements in this mindset needed that we have a different type of behavior. In fact, as you develop this mindset, as the Holy Spirit births this and grows this in you, what we'll find is that this kind of mindset, it's not a luxury in this culture. It is a necessity. Persecution, malignment, revilement, those are bound to come to someone who is committed to pursuing holiness. And so we'll know that we have to have this mindset. Notice the third element, would you? He gets into it with the word for in verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached. Interesting, isn't it? He says, this is why the gospel is preached. Now, what is he referring to as, as, the, as to uh, this word, this? Well, he's speaking of judgment. In other words, the coming judgment that is imminent and universal, which changed our behavior, it's also why we preached to those who are dead. Now, he's not meaning, by the way, that the gospel was preached to dead people. You may kind of draw that conclusion, but I don't think many yards. not hard to see that if you just insert the word now and you see that it was a past tense verb when it comes to preached, he's saying simply this. Yeah, earlier when those people were living, the gospel was preached to them even though they're now dead. He's simply describing a past action that took place. Why was the gospel preached to those who were once alive but are now dead? It's because he knew judgment was coming. And he, Peter and his readers, they loved people enough to share with them, judgment's on the way. Change the way you're living. Trust Christ. Believe in Jesus. And I think what he does next is this. Just work with me here. I think the last phrase of this text is describing the people who heard that preaching and came to faith in Christ. Look what he says. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, I think that's a reference just to death. That is the judgment, the wages of sin is death. So he says, yeah, people experience death, but they still live in the spirit the way God does through the gospel being preached. So this third element is gospel declaration. It really is part of our different behavior, okay? But it's this gospel declaration that explains our difference and then helps others know how they can escape coming judgment and be different themselves. Even if they die, they actually live. And remember, 
What's really the point of the text? It's how to live for the will of God. So throughout this text, you see the idea of living beginning in verse 2 all the way down through verse 6. Peter's describing how do people actually live in the moment for the will of God and then eternally with God. It's through dying to self. And even when we die physically, we live with God. All of this is from and by the gospel. So he says, we preached the gospel. It's just a broad way, really, of of, of describing what we all know we must be doing. And that is sharing the good news. You know, Peter in this text, he doesn't really list different ways to witness, does he? He doesn't get into like why some people are afraid, how it's difficult or, or when. He just assumes the best that, hey, he says, you know what? There were people who were living like pagans and we knew judgment was coming. So we shared the gospel with them. And then some of them believe. So even though they're dead now, guess what? They're actually living with God. I love the fact that Peter assumes that sharing the gospel was just part of this church's culture. It's just part of what they knew they were to do. Tell people the good news of Christ. Why? Because it is how we move from death to life. It's the avenue from deliverance, excuse me, to deliverance from destruction. In fact, this simple phrase, this is why we, the gospel was preached, really kind of gives us the the fuel for why our behavior is different, why we can pursue holiness, why we can endure malignment. It's because the gospel matters. Can we just for a moment, can we celebrate that gospel? Can we rehearse it together and review it? That before the foundations of the world... God moved of his own accord, out of his own character, to save sinners. And sure enough, when man rebelled, uh, there was a chasm between God and man now that man could not bridge on his own. It was a canyon too large for anyone to cross on their own. And so God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live and die and be raised as the God-man in our place for our sin. And in that, God reconciles sinners to himself. All who believe that Jesus is the only way that this chasm, this cavern can be crossed, who put faith in Christ and trust in Jesus alone, They are saved by this gospel. They're changed by this gospel. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was the sure sign that he was 100% satisfied forever with the sacrifice, the substitute of Jesus Christ for sinners. And as soon as he raised from the dead, there were at least 11 who said, we're witnesses of this. And they began to share that news. It turned into about 72, then 120, and the rest of Acts records the spread of the gospel to the far corners of the world. And since that time, billions have put their faith in Jesus, in the good news that the God-man came and lived and died and was raised again for their justification. And now, even today still, any who believe in Jesus will be saved by God. That's the gospel. Amen, church. That's what was preached. Makes my heart want to sing that old chorus. At the cross, at the cross, 
where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I am happy all the day. That verse is good too, you know. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You know what? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I am happy all the day. That's the gospel. That's what was preached. That's what changed their behavior, delivered them from judgment, saved their soul. That's why they endured, persevered, because of the gospel. Can we thank God for the gospel this morning? Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that great news. Well, there's your three ingredients in a nutshell. Dying to self, which is the primary, most important one, and feeds, ignites, in some sense, activates the other ones. Remember, follow the flow of the fours, and you'll kind of just be able to textually see this. That feeds a different kind of behavior because you're not worried about living for your way. You want to live for God's will. And of course, that is fed by the gospel. So they work together. They tie together. They're just all ingredients really in the one thing called living for the will of God. That's the salsa. Are you with me? And these are the ingredients. And that's what's happening in these first six verses. Peter's calling them to live for the will of God. And these three elements are, are, are part of the mindset that we must embrace. This is how we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. And this all points back to our take-home truth, which is, and I'll have you read it with me one more time. Let's put it in our pocket, take it home with us. Let's just log it here, can we? Say it with me, church. Christ's suffering leads to a whole new mindset required for our suffering, which is equivalent to living for the will of God. And that mindset consists of three things. Same with me. Dying to self, different behavior, and gospel declaration. Now, if you recall last week, I gave you examples, multiple examples of dying to self. Because I, I, I sensed as I was preparing to preach this a few weeks ago that perhaps the thought would be, well, that's just your idea, Todd. You're, you're kind of giving those words dying to self or not even in the text necessarily. You're just kind of throwing that on us. Prove it to me. I like a challenge. So we did. We proved from the text in Peter as well as the New Testament thread that this is a common concept that we must embrace as followers of Jesus. But is there an example, not only of the final two, but of this entire mindset? Is there an example apart from Christ? We know Christ lived this. He died to self. 
He had different behavior. He was sinless and holy, and he preached the gospel. He declared the kingdom of God always, all the way up to his final breath. We know that's what Christ did. But is there an example of how this played out in someone's life that, that would be, uh, you know, like you and me and in the church, kind of like uh, um, someone who, who would say, well, I can look to that as well. I see Christ's example. Here it is in another person. Like, are there other examples, Todd, of this mindset of these last two that you can bring to the table as further evidence? I'm really glad you asked me to do that, and I'm going to do that as we close. I won't spend long here, but I want you to investigate this chapter later this week in your small group, personal devotions, around your dinner table, because I have been amazed over the last three or four days how much Acts chapter 16 really fleshes out this mindset. In fact, I was so enamored with it. It was the chapter that Julie and I read in our uh, Bible reading time Wednesday night. We're reading through the New Testament chronologically. So we're assigned some readings based on the schedule. And Wednesday night was Acts 16. So before bed, we just pick our Bibles up and we read that assigned reading. It was Acts 16. And I, I was processing the message and just thinking through, uh, you know, digesting all that's going into these moments on Sunday. We finished reading Acts 16, and all night, this is just kind of running through my head. The next day, I'm processing it, and I, really, I begin to realize these three things that Peter brings out through the use of the word four three times really outline Acts 16. It's, it's uncanny. In fact, you'll notice this if you read Acts 16, that verses 1 through 10 are all about dying to self. They could not get to certain areas, and so they... We're wondering why, and the Bible says they concluded that the Holy Spirit would have us go to Macedonia, and then they got the Macedonian call. And so they changed direction, and they said, we won't do this, we'll instead do this. It was off their radar. It wasn't what they were expecting, but God was leading them differently. And so they said, we won't do what we thought we should do, we'll do what God says. And then beginning in all about verse 11 through about verse 24, you see a different kind of behavior as they entered Macedonia, especially the city of Philippi, and this kind of behavior that was so different, it led to them being not just maligned verbally, but then arrested and imprisoned and beaten. They were noticed as different. There was an actionable um, distinction in their lifestyle. It led to their arrest. They were beaten, placed in this jail. But then, what do they do in jail? They sing and praise God. An earthquake occurs, and they declare the gospel. And so the chapter concludes about verses 25 to 34 with this jailer coming to Christ, Paul and them sharing the word of the Lord with him and his family, and they're all baptized. And so Thursday, sometime around 10 in the morning, I'm like, wow, here it is, flesh and blood examples. Here's a, a, an in living color picture of this mindset and every one of its components. And what does Acts 16 show us? Devoted followers living for the will of God. And how were they thinking? They were thinking just like Christ thought. They had armed themselves with this mindset that dying to self, different behavior, and gospel declaration that's just part of who we are and what we do because we are devoted followers of Jesus living for the will of God. 
So my ask to you is the same that I asked myself this week. Will I answer Peter's call and arm myself with this same way of thinking so that I can live for the will of God? Man, my yes is on the table, and will yours be there as well? Can we as a church rise up and be devoted followers, thinking in line with Christ so that we live for the will of God? I'm praying it's a resounding yes from First Family Church. Will you stand with me, church? All of our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, you're standing. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is so precious to us. It's so relevant to us. We don't make it relevant. We don't have to make it current. God, forgive us if we ever think that. It is current. It speaks directly into our life. Lord, I thank you that through Peter, your Holy Spirit inspired him to call us as his readers, as well as those first century readers, to call us to a different type of lifestyle, a holy lifestyle, even in the midst of hostility. To die to self, to declare the gospel in whatever way we can, at any time we can. Lord, all of these are just mindsets that, these, these are our ingredients of the mindset that we embrace. Because we know this is the mindset of Jesus. It was the mindset of his early followers. And now centuries later, it is the mindset required for those who want to live for the will of God. Oh, Jesus, empower us to be that kind of follower. Not by our own manufacturing, not by our own willpower, but precisely because of the gospel. Cause our faith, our trust to be solely in you, Jesus, for our feet to be securely on the gospel and from that place to die to self, to behave differently, and to declare the gospel. Give us that posture and that mindset so that in this town, Ankeny, in this metro area, very soon in a very much more specific way in Carlisle, in places around the globe where we have partners and people that we love, the gospel would be preached in such a way that those who are far from you and without life would trust you and be delivered from coming judgment and given eternal life. Oh God, make us an instrument to that end for your glory.